Greetings to each one. Those of you who have been well enough to come, I was glad that Sean was able to be here. It's some others that aren't, including some of my family. We have a lot to rejoice about this morning. The hostage is released. And um, it's a blessing. had a conversation with a young man, a young brother this week. Interesting, interesting conversation that I had with him about conspiracy theories. His perspective is that the Anabaptists, conservative Anabaptists, are more susceptible to conspiracy theories. And he said his dad says that those who participate in them are participating in gossip. And that's, yeah, we talked about that for a little bit. If God is going to judge every word we say, we will be judged in our participation in those theories. Now, that's not my message, but I was, I was thinking of that and I thought, well, if we really are more, if we're really more gullible to these well-spun stories than other people, that's debatable. I, I don't know. But if we are, these are my thoughts, it's actually understandable. Because we operate on an alternate, alternative worldview from general society already. Especially, think of the elite, think of the professionals, think of the powerful. We don't accept the standard evolutionary story. We don't believe that matter is all that there is. We even, unfortunately from the for the message this morning, we even differ from many Christians on a host of issues. Basically, we have an alternative view of the entire universe. We have an alternative view talk about the mainstream of the past of the present, of the future, the why we're here, the purpose of our life, how we are to live, we think differently. And we take the Bible as the standard. We take it as this is reality. Not what we hear out there is not reality necessarily. This is what we take as reality, not society. So the mainstream, they spin their story. They spin their big bang to human psychology, to um, morals. And for most of we disagree with it wholesale. So 
when someone comes around with an alternative view to mainstream, we are primed to believe it. That's the conclusion I have come to. Because we're already disagreeing with so much of the affirmation, it causes us to be vulnerable to other alternative views that are not true. And so we are set up to be susceptible to these theories. Now, I like to burst our bubble, and I don't think I'll do that. Not every alternative view from mainstream is true. <laughs> Not every alternative view is true. Some of the theories that come around are just as false as the Big Bang Theory that happened 13.8 billion years ago, happened, allegedly happened. So we do have an alternative view of reality than mainstream society. And our alternative view of reality causes us to be very different than mainstream society. Different in our beliefs is different in our actions. We actually create a distinct culture and we create a distinct society. Am I to create? I mean, that's the outgrowth of our belief system. And that is the very definition of a stranger and pilgrim, which is actually the title of my message this morning, The Beginning of the Pilgrim. We are still in 1 Peter, and you can turn there if you wish. We're looking at the first few verses in 1 Peter. Before we do that, let's just pause for a word of prayer again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word. Lord, if you think of how many people in the past have striven and have died for the purpose of keeping this word so that we can have it today. Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word. And we also thank you, Lord, that you are here and you are present and you are here willing and able to instruct us. So, Lord, we just thank you. As we open up your word, we ask you, Lord, to bless us, to bless us with your illumination, with your insight, with your spirit, and with your power. Help us, Lord, to look into your word and see it correctly the way you intended, and then to use it according to your will and purpose, to hit the goalie with it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Peter instructs us actually how to, uh, how, what to believe and how to view and how to experience the world. We are strangers and pilgrims. 
So, just going back to the to the first point is we are culpable to um, being spun other stories, but the fact is the answer to that is not to join the mainstream. That is not my goal. The answer is to actually be centered on the Word of God and what's in the Word of God and what is true according to scripture and what is true according to that that is what we and and some of those other conspiracies while they do not identify as mainstream neither do they classify as being biblical or being truthful so here we have first peter and the last message was the beginning of the series here in first peter and it had a strange title it had the title, Peter, Pilgrims, and Pre-Knowledge. i just do a little bit of review here. Now, it had three, those three points. It had five points of message, but it only had three subjects. And that's intentional. The message had five points, but only three subjects. And if you look in First Peter chapter 1, you will find... The first subject, Peter. We looked at Peter as an individual, how he first met Jesus, and then the call that he finally got from Jesus to uh, follow him full time. And the second point was still on the first subject, was Peter the Apostle. And then we looked at how the apostles laid the foundation of the church. And they're the ones who had the word of God given verbally, and some of them were inspired to write it down. And when, when they died, they did not create an apost- uh, apostolic secession. Peter was not the first pope, and there was not a secession. But neither were there any other apostles. When the apostles died, then that, uh, that office died with them. So Peter, an apostle, that will be a capital A apostle. So they established the church, and they established the doctrine, and then they passed on. The third point, which is the second subject, then, was the audience, and that's about the strangers. And uh, strangers is synonymous with pilgrims, actually, depending which translation you read. It'll be either strangers or pilgrims. And the idea is that strangers and pilgrims is an identity of God's people throughout history. It's a small group of people in a greater society among whom they don't really fit in. They are here temporarily. They're going somewhere. And and if we can understand this entire letter, well, in fact, you can understand the entire scriptures. But if you look at this letter in the, in the concept of a stranger and pilgrim, you'll get more out of it. Then the third subject which is the fourth and fifth points, is election and foreknowledge, which is here in, uh, in the beginning of verse 2. <clears throat> election. We look that God chooses. God chose you. But in election, there's two wills. God chooses and you choose. And if God chooses and you choose the same thing, 
It's two wills. In other words, it's two free will agents choosing the same thing. God and the individual. And God is still sovereign in all that choosing. And then foreknowledge. God knew from eternity past that he was going to create you and he knew you were going to choose him. I wanted to elect because I answered the call. He didn't predetermine it, but he knew it. Now, I don't understand that. There are certain times that I think I understand its trinity. Oh, I think I'm getting it. And then, then a few other points came in that I hadn't thought about right at that time, and I said, no, I, I don't understand it. The foreknowledge is a little bit like that. Sometimes I think I get it, but finally... God says it, and I'm going to take it, because I do not understand all that foreknowledge. I can understand parts of it, yet they don't, the ends don't quite come together for me. Maybe you can explain it to me afterwards. And so I say, it's true, because God says so. God knew my future, and he knew your future without causing your future. That's basically it. Okay, let's read again the first couple verses here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now the text, the message title is The Beginning of the Pilgrim. And I call that go again. What is a stranger and a pilgrim? And I described it last time, but I like to think of it as an illustration this morning. Think of, when you think of a stranger and pilgrim, think of a weed. Think of a very pretty yellow flower in your lawn. Or a, maybe in a very uh, fast-growing vine in your cornfield. Think of that. <clears throat> what is the definition of a weed? It is a plant growing where it you don't want it, basically. You say you don't belong there. Well, who's to say what belongs and what doesn't? It's a plant growing where you don't want it to grow. Now, and it's out of its normal domain. It may be ever so pretty. It may be even valued in another part of the world or some other location. It may be valued. But right here, right in this time, I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. It's not valued. It's not desired in its present location. And now you have an idea what God's people have experienced throughout history. They are strangers and pilgrims. They are weeds in their environment. Now you say weeds are bad. Well, the whole, just the point of the illustration is not that weeds are bad. It's just that the illustration is that you have 
a grouping that doesn't doesn't fit in, doesn't it's not desired. But the dominant culture generally, talk about God's people, the dominant culture generally does not like them or desire them. And like weeds, the more aggressive the people of God are, the more opposition they face. So what if a few vines grow in your cornfield? Not a big deal, but if you have vines taking over the cornfield, you will really, really be concerned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three men were a threat to the entire religious system of Nebuchadnezzar, and they could not be tolerated. They were out of their environment. They were a threat. They had to be destroyed. You see, we look at that and say, well, that was wrong for the king to do that. Well, no. If you look in his environment and his perspective, he had to do that if he wanted to maintain what he wanted to maintain. These these three yeah, Hebrew children, they, say they were weeds. They were strangers and foreigners and pilgrims. The early Anabaptists were also were tortured and killed in an attempt to curb the movement because they were deemed too radical. They were a threat to society, uh, both religious and political stability. And it's the same today in, a, in authoritarian countries. Um, whether it's Muslim, whether it's communism, or other, any strong ideological culture. And, and I would like to point out, it's not only Christians that are considered weeds in these cultures. It's anything, you have a, you have a, a monoculture identity, whatever it is, and you have anybody who doesn't fit into there is considered a weed and, and they try to destroy that. But Christians, definitely will not fit in to that dominant society. They will always be outsiders from the masses. Sometimes we hear of revivals, region-wide revivals that change the culture. They change the, the norms and they change the values of a culture. And that actually does happen. It, and it's something we should actually seek for. So there are times when maybe the values of a Christian um, become actually a little more dominant in society. But the Bible as a whole envisions the reality of a Christian minority. Sometimes a very small minority. That's the norm. Some verses, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. Just give you a little bit of overview of some verses that, that demonstrate the Christian minority. The very familiar verse, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. It implies a 
greater dominant culture that either uh, aggressively or passively tries to press you into its mold. That's the assumption. That's the um, it, it, the implication. It implies that. And God calls us to be more and more transformed into his will and purpose and image. So true Christians will always be weeds in this world. There will be three, there are three dominant crops. Three dominant crops in this world. You have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. Everyone in society will be one of those crops. And Christians deny all three of them. So that's the that's sort of the image I wanted to give us as a stranger and a pilgrim. So if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a stranger and a pilgrim. You can just 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 get rid of the idea that you want to fit in or that you want to be accepted or whatever it is. Because if you're going to be true to God, you will not be. You will be different. Your values will be different. Your Life will be different. Your morals will be different. Lots of things will just be different. And it's best if we understand that. Okay, I accept that. I'm going to be different. And that's fine. Um, just a little bit on a side note, some thinking of it. Um, I'm not... Let's see if I could say this in a proper way. It, it's 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 a principle that I'm trying to to uh, you have to be illustrated to you to understand it. But okay, let's just say it this way. Let's say uh, you have someone who actually does go to a maybe a secular college for some reason, whatever reason that may be. <clears throat> That person will do better if they, whatever setting they came from, they just maintain that straight side. Well, John D. Martin did that, actually. I think he kept on wearing his plain suit or whatever. In other words, he just kept his identity strong and solid through whatever environment he was in and did not put it aside while he went and tried to sort of fit in. That is actually a strength in that. And whether you do that in that area or you do it in, in uh, even maybe in missionary work in other, other areas as well. Just get rid of the idea that you're going to fit in and go on the God's word and on your values that are out of the word of God and you stand on them. You're better off it's just accepting that position. Okay, here's the next verse. Um, elect these Christians. Yeah, okay, these pilgrims and, and uh, strangers and pilgrims are elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And this is reality. This is not a conspiracy theory to say that you are chosen of God. Now, how does that chosen of God occur? Well, it occurs through the sanctification of the spirit. That's what Peter says here, through sanctification of the spirit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the spirit. Now, that means the Holy Spirit. Now, to sanctify means to make holy. And to make holy, basically, its root term means to separate. So you are, you are separated by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you are set apart, you are separated, and you're separated for special use. You're, the reason you're separated is for some purpose. So the Spirit of God comes to you, which you're part of the mainstream, you're part of the world and the flesh and the devil, and he comes, the Spirit comes, and he takes you and he separates you. It's, uh, it's a little bit like, well, i uh, thinking of China. You don't use China to feed your cat or your dog with. At least we don't. Maybe you got some China at a sale that's no longer separated. But uh, the idea of China isn't isn't quite doesn't quite get the idea because the idea that I'm thinking of is not you're not necessarily so special. I mean, God, we are all special in God's sight. But God chooses regular vessels and He sets them aside for for use. And I like more the idea of the vessels that were made for the temple or the tabernacle. Now they were. High-quality vessels. They were golden. They were brad, bronze, and they were good vessels. But you could use these. You could use those vessels for other things as well. The king could have those vessels, but they were they were specifically went through a ceremony, and then they were set aside for only religious use, only used for gods in in the in the tabernacle. And that is the picture that the Spirit does to every one of us. If you have the Spirit, you've been set aside for his use and no longer for common use. You are now been set aside from the masses for a special purpose for God and his kingdom. Collectively, later here in First Peter in chapter two, we talk we talk about collectively we are chosen. We are a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. So we are sanctified. We're set apart by the Spirit of God unto obedience. Now you can understand this. The call of the Spirit to set, apart, set us aside for a purpose, it's, it's a lifelong purpose. It's not a once time, once, you're not, you don't now get your ticket to heaven and you got your ticket in your back pocket and now you're going to heaven, but this is a lifelong relationship established. <clears throat> Jesus, when he told his disciples, said, I'm going to leave you, but when I leave you, I'm going to send you a comforter. And that comforter will be with you forever. 
I looked at other translations to see what they call this comforter. And the first four I looked at each had a different one, different um, word for it. They had an advocate. They had a helper. You had a friend. You had a counselor. That's all different ways of translating this one Greek word, comforter. And so we've been chosen unto obedience. And that obedience, we have an advocate, we have a helper, we have a friend, we have a counselor, we have a comforter to help us all in this way of obedience. And uh, this, this, this sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience is an ongoing process. It's the work of the Spirit. When I'm being sanctified, I'm being made more holy. It, I'm being holified. To use a worm, I don't think that's a, probably not an English term, but it describes it. As a pilgrim, I'm already separate, but I'm becoming more separate. So we're positionally separate, but we also become more functionally separate as well. Something is wrong. If we are not more holy, if we are not more separate from the world and the flesh and the devil than when we were first saved, something is wrong if we're not more separate. Uh, we must necessarily grow to be alive. We progress from milk to meat. We move from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the spirit. We become less selfish and more giving. We are being holified. And that is one of the primary works of the Spirit of God in our life. Walking in the Spirit means I am walking in obedience to God. And fruit comes out of my life. Fruit is not formed instantly. Fruit is the result of a process. And fruit is actually, in, 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 in a lot of ways, fruit is the end result of a process. Now, I... When you use fruit and you think of fruit trees, the analogies don't always hold out completely because you should have immediate fruit. <laughs> but this fruit should continue to grow and expand. And you can go to the fruit of the Spirit there in Genesis in Galatians chapter 5 where you have peace and joy and love and gentleness and long-suffering and self-control and all those things. There's a thousand ways to belong to the world. Just like there's a thousand ways to shoot a gun. But there's only one way to hit that bird that's flying. You can miss it a thousand ways. There's only one way to hit the bird, and that is to aim and hit it. There's a thousand ways to belong to the world. There's only one way to belong to God, and it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God.
the initial separation and calling, and then the ongoing work unto obedience. It's the only way you're going to hit that bird. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ going on in that verse there. Jesus didn't actually sprinkle us with anything. And we're not talking about baptism. I think it's simply, from my understanding, it's simply referring to the Old Testament. And a Hebrew writer, and I'm going to read a few verses in Hebrews chapter 9, refers to, He's referring to the original giving and accepting of the law. So Hebrews 9, verses 19 to 21, talking about sprinkling of the blood. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, and he spoke to the people, and they they responded and said, yes, this is in here, but if you go back and look, they responded and said, we will accept that. So God gave them the law, and they accepted that. Then he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And he sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. And joined, this is together, God and the people coming together. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So Moses sprinkled the blood on all the people. They literally got sprinkled with blood. And the blood in the tabernacle was sprinkled on the altar once every year after that. We are sprinkled by the blood. We are covered by the blood when, the, when, we, when we accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He died for us. We symbolically or theoretically, or whatever you want to put it, we get sprinkled with that blood in the same way the Old Testament people physically, where they are present, we spiritually are actually sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood, that blood of Christ, pays for our sin. It forgives our sin. It takes care of our past. It it. I don't know, I don't have it written down, but it just, the Old Testament were just types and shadows, but this is the real thing, the Lord Jesus. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. There's so many songs been written about the blood of Jesus, covered by the blood, and just one drop, and <laughs> the blood of Jesus. It's there, sprinkled. So I don't know, Peter, why did he bring it in here? He's just a, a, a sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Grace be unto you and multiplied. Going on here. This is Peter's normal greeting. So you are covered by the blood. That is great. But did you know there's more blessing yet than that? <laughs> In other words, if grace, if you're covered by the blood and then you have grace and peace being multiplied after that. Peter is asking, there's a, there's a lot more blessing from God and Peter is asking that it be multiplied. 
So you have more grace, 20 times more grace in the future than what you had when you got born again. Or you have peace. When you got born again, you had to forgive, your sins been forgiven. But as you go on, peace is multiplied. Just think of, uh, if you would have all the peace that you would need at the beginning, why would you need a, a scripture like Philippians chapter 4, where it talks about the peace of God guarding your heart. Said when you have, when you had trouble, bring everything to the Lord in, to the, everything in prayer to the Lord. Be anxious for nothing. And then the peace of God will come and it will guard your heart. And then you should think on these things and think on these things. And then the, the peace of God will come. And and the whole idea is Peter is wishing and blessing them with grace and peace because we don't get everything at once. It actually has the potential to increase. Read and study Philippians 4 sometime and meditate on it. It's the peace chapter. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Peter is like Paul. He doesn't get very far in his letter. We're at verse 3 here. And he says, Bless be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, was he was he writing and he just got inspired to just bless the Lord? Or was he actually trying to suppress it and only got to verse 3 till it finally burst out? How long do you normally go in your day before you spill over in worship to God? If you read the word in the morning when you get up, it shouldn't be a dry routine exercise. You know, if we don't begin our devotions with a worshipful heart, we should end with one. There's a Paul had a had a, has some other beginnings in his letters. He he just had the same same I'll say the same problem. <laughs> Um, Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Uh, you have almost almost identical to what Peter had or in Ephesians chapter one, verse three again. Blessed be God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And he keeps on going to the end of verse 6 about the blessing from God. And then he starts about the blessing from the Lord Jesus. And then he starts to the blessing from the Holy Spirit. And he goes the whole way to verse 14, I believe, till he's finally done with all the blessings that we get from the Trinity. Now, these people were men of God, Paul and Peter. But aren't you a man of God? Or a woman of God. We belong to God. How would our outlook on life be different? If each morning we would start with a worshipful and praising 
heart. How different would your outlook be? We would see and we would experience a different world. Maybe I would even be a man of God, if that were the case, a woman of God. So I have a challenge for you this week. I want to challenge you. How long can you go each morning before you burst out in worship to God? When you get up in the morning. A minute? Ten minutes? Two cups of coffee? Are you at noon and you haven't worshipped God yet? You haven't praised God yet? You haven't felt worshipful? Have you gone by all week? Challenge for us this week. How long can you go in the morning until you worship the Lord? Well, Peter, Peter had it right because he, he, he worshiped the Lord because he had reason to, as if we don't, right? So let's read here in verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, a worshipful heart sees the goodness of God. And God, as Peter says it here, has abundant mercy. You see, God doesn't owe us anything. God did not have to do anything when we, mankind, sinned. You know, God doesn't send people to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. That's not why he sends people to hell. You're probably aware of that. He sends people to hell, or rather, people go to hell because they are judged by their, because of their sins by God. People break every commandment there is in the book. Take the Ten Commandments, and which one of them didn't you violate? Steal and lie and kill by hating and committing adultery by lusting. We all incur and deserve, absolutely deserve the wrath of God and the justice of God. The question comes sometimes, how can God be a good God if he allows such bad things to happen to innocent people. And we're talking about bad things. We're talking about people do very bad things. Well, the hostages, uh, it, uh, clearly they were not treated as badly. Uh, my understanding is they were not treated nearly as badly as they could have been treated. But think of a hostage situation where they are they are horribly abused and put in terrible situations and and you have children and you have you have abuse you have torture you have neglect you have injustice where um this person did something wrong but this person gets accused for it and he gets scot free and there's just all all kinds of things wrong 
why doesn't God get rid of this evil? If he's a good God, why doesn't he do that? And the fact is, if God would get rid of all the evil in the world right now, would you enjoy that world? Would you? Well, if God would get rid of all the evil in the world, I wouldn't be here to enjoy it. Because I am a part of that. Okay, so I don't torture babies, right? I don't. But that's not the criteria. They're still evil. God will eventually deal with evil. He does restrain evil. And maybe that is actually one of the reasons why we didn't have the worst case scenario there. But God is not just going to stop evil. And he's not just going to stop you or me or anyone else who wants to do evil. But he has actually something better in mind. And you know what it is? What is better than getting rid of all evil? It's redemption. He's going to do more than just stop it. In the future, he's going to stop it all together. But for right now, he's going to take evil people and he's going to redeem them. And that is more marvelous in that one essence than actually getting rid of it right now. He's going to do more than stop it. He's going to change us. There in, a, in the first Corinthians... And, and um, the first Corinthians, the, the church at Corinth wasn't quite the model church, <laughs> but they were redeemed. And after Paul lists a whole list of horrible sins of adultery and murder, I don't know, forget all uh, effeminate and a whole list of sins, he said this in 1 Corinthians six eleven, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I wonder he was talking to Peter. (laughs) But they were apostles. They were laying the foundation of the church. God is at work in bringing good out of the evil that's going on currently. Peter says later on in his second letter, he says, God isn't late with his promise as some measure lateness. God isn't slack concerning his promise. He is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the ends because he doesn't want anyone lost. He is giving everyone space and time to change, in a sense, a time to respond to God. And that is, is what Peter, when he's worshiping God and he says, um, it's in his mercy, his abundant mercy. He's talking about redemption. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for his abundant mercy. And if you are saved today, you have every reason to get up tomorrow morning and one minute after you get up to worship God. (laughs) We have reason for that because it's abundant mercy. And what did he do in his abundant mercy? Well, he has begotten us again.
begotten us again, born again. That is a Bible term. For a while, this term became a popular society term. The first openly born again president of the United States was, anybody know? Jimmy Carter, yes, that's right. <laughs> All the older ones, okay. <laughs> Jimmy Carter was the first who ran on the platform as a, as a born-again president. Born-again, not president, he ran on the platform. I'm a born-again Christian becoming president. That was in 1976. In 1980, there were three candidates for president. Jimmy Carter and uh, Ronald Reagan, and I don't know who the third one was for sure. They all profess to be born again <laughs> because it, it had its swing and its popularity. So, but it can be confusing to people. Even like a person like Nicodemus, a very religious person, was confused. Another term that is more theological in nature is the word re generation where something is recreated regenerated generated um like genesis regenesized but being born again is sometimes best seen for what it is not so we're going to go through a little list of things of what it is not being born again is not a change of attitude. A change of attitude or heart, such as a sinner, is deciding to try to stop and try not to sin. <laughs> there may be many motivations why a person would want to try to stop to sin and would actually want to please God. There's other ulterior motives. Maybe he's... He doesn't want the consequences. Maybe he has fear of judgment. Maybe he wants to look better in society. Maybe he wants to get married or she. But a change of attitude or trying to change is not necessarily a, um, the new birth. Confessing sin and acknowledging that God is right is not necessarily the new birth. Praying a prayer is not the new birth. It's not changing your external ways like reformation or turning a, a new leaf. There's, there's a lot of people who quit being drunkards and who, who actually quit drugs and, and, and other things like that. They reform their life. They have external ch changes. Not necessarily the new birth. Being born again is not getting religious or becoming devout or observant of whatever religion you might think is a good one. So when you ask someone, are you a Christian? You say, yes. They say, well, when have you been born again? You say, well, I go to church. I asked one of my co-workers years ago, if someone would come up to you 
and asks you, uh, I want to become a Christian, what would you tell him? And he said, I tell him to go to church. Being born, uh, becoming religious is not necessarily being born again. Do you think the devil goes to church? If he were here, would the devil go to church? He might. Might even know which church he goes to. I don't. Maybe you do. All these things are secondary as a result of being born again. The going to church is part of the purpose of God and part of the process of sanctification, but just like spending a lot of time in a garage doesn't make you a car, going a lot, spending a lot of time at church does not make you a Christian. In fact, think of Nicodemus again. This man had all of these things that I, that I probably pointed out. He was extremely devout, and he was religious, and he went to the synagogue, and he probably he prayed, and maybe he confessed his sins. I don't know what all he did, but he wasn't born again. Being born again is something that man cannot do. You can't be born the first time, and you can't be born the second time. It's something that God does to you. It's something that God has to do. It is a supernatural work of God in your life. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, that's what we can do. We can do works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, there we go. There we have his mercy, abundant mercy again. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. God does that. John 1, 11 to 13, he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, the Calvinists can take these verses and say it's all, it's all God. It's, it, it, you, you understand me very well that there is a response from mankind. There is This is a this is a call, and there is a response, and there are acts, and there are works of repentance. There's active faith that takes place in the person that believes, and there's all those things. But finally, you can't get the Spirit of God. God gives it to you. And when he gives it to you, you are born again. You have a birth. You ever have a birth from above. You've been born anew. You believe God. You repent. You surrender. You trust. And God regenerates. It's a work of God. And it's a new birth, and it's contrasted to the original birth. When we are born of the flesh and water, and we possess the fallen nature, that's the original birth. That we, that we are born of flesh and water. 
And when I am born of God, I am born of his nature. And I begin to love the things he loves because now I have his spirit within me. And that spirit changes me and it changes my affections and it changes my desires. It's both an initial, like we talked before, and it's an ongoing work of God. God inside of me changes what I go for. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, in Christ, which means being born again, having the spirit, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so the evidence of someone becoming born again is that things have become new and he's changed and he's different. <clears throat> but this born again of the spirit is only the down payment of what is coming. So we've been uh, born again, we've been begotten again. A down payment. People. See. Oh, yeah, here you are. If a person is not born again, if you are a child of the flesh and not a child of God, you're only having a down payment of what is coming. You know, there's there's death and there's decay in our lives. There's things that don't work out. Well, it's going to get a lot worse. If you're a child of the flesh, you only have a down payment of what is coming to you later on. But we who have the spirit we're waiting for something more, an adoption. Our, our spirit has been changed, and someday our body is going to be changed. <laughs> it's in the future, so we have a down payment. But we don't, it's a hope we have, and if we go to, in the next message, we're going to talk about that hope more. Because he has, in his mercy, he has begotten us again unto a lively hope. And so we're going to talk about that lively hope and verse four is about that inheritance and so on. And the fade not away and is kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation and ready to be revealed the last time. And it all just goes on and on. More reasons why we should worship God. But right now, right now, we're not there. We have the spirit inside of us, but we also have this body of flesh. And so there is this conflict, and I, I'm not going to go into it, but you go in Ephesians chapter 4. You can go many places, but Ephesians chapter 4 talks about putting off the flesh and putting on the spirit. And we're all familiar with that term, so I'm not going to get into it much, but I, I want to just recognize it. There's this battle going on between the flesh and the spirit. Someday we won't have that anymore. <clears throat> Ephesians talks about deceitful lust. He said the Gentiles walk and they walk in deceitful lust. Now, lust are, uh, are desires that you have. And the idea that these desires are deceitful is, is, is clearly demonstrated because if, if you if you if you get drugs and you feel good eventually initially you feel good it it's a it's a desire and you go into drugs and if you feel good 
But eventually, you're just going to need those drugs to survive. That, that what it promised initially, it no longer brings. It's, uh, the lust is the deceitful. It's the same way with food. It's the same way with sex. It's the same way with power. It's the same way with everything. It, it promises you certain things, but it doesn't deliver. Those lusts are deceitful. It's like people that climb up the ladder, they climb up the ladder, they climb up the ladder when they finally get to the top, and they're empty. It didn't deliver. And so, um, it is good for us, as we are in this battle, to know that whatever desire, whatever lust you have that is fleshly, it will not deliver. And if we read here and we talk about the spirit, we only have the down payment of the spirit and we follow the spirit, it will deliver what it has promised. In fact, it's going to be a whole lot more than you expect. And so there is that contrast between as we are in this battle as an encouragement to go after the spirit. This new, this new man was created when I was born again. But now we're in the battle between the, the flesh and the spirit. Do you really know how bad you could be? If you were to give yourself to your flesh? Do you realize how bad I could be? Do you realize I could be a pretty bad person? And don't fool yourself, so could you. This is a little bit of a warning. When we battle the flesh, we shall not give in to our flesh. It's deceitful for one thing, but we can be. And we, we heard of stories of how uh, people have walked away from God and so on and how bad they actually can be. But being born again is a new life in Christ. And now we have the Spirit of God, and now we also have the, the gifts of the Spirit, and we have the fruit of the Spirit beginning to manifest in our lives. <clears throat> so as a, as a little bit of review here at the end, we are sanctified by the Spirit. We are guided to obedience and we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. As such, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We no longer fit here. And in spite of all the opposition, we increase in grace and peace. And we worship God because he is such a good God. He is abundant in mercy. So much so that although he could justly punish and destroy us, he chooses to redeem us and to change us. Both now and as we shall see forever. And that is not a conspiracy theory. May God bless you.